The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Sarah Roberts and her team have brought the new perennial movement to the South on a large scale. The new entrance gardens, large sweeps of grasses, perennials, native plants presented in a naturalistic style welcomes you to the Atlanta History Center. The garden has settled in And in this episode, Sarah explains the details that make it successful. It is a creation perfect for insects, small mammals, birds, and people. Sarah Roberts is the Olga C. de Consueta Vice President of the Consueta Gardens and Living Collection at the Atlanta History Center. A college internship in curation at the Arnold Arboretum of Harvard University sparked Sarah's career path in public horticulture. During her undergraduate studies at Berry College, she spent a year on scholarship in the United Kingdom studying historic gardens as part of her honors degree in horticulture. The next five years were spent as curator of herbaceous plants and outdoor gardens at the New York Botanical Garden. She then returned to England, completing a diploma in garden design from the UK's Garden Design School. Upon Sarah's return to the U.S., she began consulting for the Atlanta History Center, which led to her current position as Vice President of Gasueda Gardens. She leads the development, curation, and presentation of the 33-acre public garden with three historic houses. Sarah has written for numerous publications, been featured on Martha Stewart Radio, the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, Garden Smart TV series, and the podcast, Stuff You Missed in History Class. This is Episode 75, New Perennial Movement Goes South with Sarah Roberts. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Sarah, would you introduce us to the new entrance garden at the Atlanta History Center? Sure. We started planting the entrance gardens a couple of years ago. It's settled in now, and it's really coming into its own. The property extends across our whole road frontage, really anywhere you could enter the Atlanta History Center from Slayton Drive or West Paces Ferry Road. When you drive in, that will be your first impression of the Atlanta History Center and Goizueta Gardens. The entrance gardens are all designed to have the same general style and look throughout that whole space. It spans about eight acres, including free parking deck and the drives that connect all the different buildings. We have a lot of separate beds. So in front of the Cyclorama, in front of the museum, in front of McElreath Hall, the Keenan Research Center, 
what I was trying to do with all these separate garden spaces was connect them by using the same design across that whole facade of our museum and our entrances. What design style did you use for those? The architecture after we renovated the front of the museum and built the cyclorama was very modern. We wanted to put in a modern landscape that reflected that with the architecture and had a continuous flow through all of these disparate garden beds across our entrances. What I decided to do was work with the new perennial movement style. It goes by a lot of different names. The Dutch wave is another one. Been inspired by that style. It's really been championed by Pete Aldolf, but there's many, many others who work in this style, both in the United States and in Europe. Haven't seen it done in the South. So I really wanted to do that on a large scale in the Southeast. And why not put it right up on our front door? The History Center is a modern institution, and I wanted to have this modern landscape in the front of it that's also speaks to a lot of our values. We do a lot of work on sustainability here with the curation and maintenance of our 33-acre Goizueta Gardens to make sure that that first impression when you drive in tells you that this is a public garden that you can come and enjoy, but also demonstrates those values of sustainability and environmental awareness and stewardship. New Perennial Movement style really fits that very well. Could you explain the New Perennial Movement? For a lot of people who are interested gardeners, the most popular places that you can see this are the High Line in New York City or the Lurie Garden in Chicago. Both of those gardens have large sweeps of perennial, especially grasses. They incorporate a lot of native plants. They don't have to be exclusively all native, but here we chose to try to find an 80% Georgia native plant palette and then 20% are other plants. We can get into later on the specifics there. The idea was to create a naturalistic style. Everything that's planted can grow really easily on the site that it's in. It is matched to the soil and light conditions that we have. Instead of having to fight the conditions in a boggy area, we plant things that want to have wetter soil. We have dry, hard ground. We plant things that want to be in dry, hard ground. So we're matching the site to the conditions, which you should always do in a garden. The maintenance is a big piece of why this garden is different than traditional, more of an English aesthetic around here. The maintenance that most jumps out at people that is different is that we leave these plants standing all winter. That creates habitat for especially birds, but small mammals and insects. The stems of plants can be places where bees hibernate, so we don't cut them down, especially our native bees. Early from mid-February, we start to cut things back because new growth is coming up from the base. That's when we clean the gardens out. From December to February, you see a garden senesce in its natural way. The plants that were selected for this style are all plants that die well for example. So something like coneflowers has a very strong stem and a beautiful black seed head that will stand up all winter and create a beautiful black orb in the landscape with a straight stem. And if you plant that in front of a frothy grass that stands up all winter, has strong stems and creates a background to that, you have really nice contrast. When I was selecting plants for this garden, I was really thinking about winter first. Think about my native plant palette, thinking about winter, creating habitat, creating a palette that had plants that would support our native pollinators and our native birds as well. All that goes into this process. and It was a starting point for me, really. And that's actually what I do with every garden I design is starting in winter. 
both with what the perennials will look like and which of those perennials look really beautiful in winter when you leave them standing or if they have evergreen foliage in winter and also with the structural components. In new perennial movement gardens and in this one, you often see clipped evergreens or topiary structural plants in the background. I've done that here as well with different plants, different hedges, topiary sculpted forms, because when you're planting sweeps and waves of perennials, having that clipped evergreen mixed in with that or as a backdrop gives it some structure and helps it from looking like a weedy mess. Especially when we're trying to encourage people to do more with natives, we don't want them to think that those gardens look like a weedy mess. Having seed heads and things that look dead, for example, or beige or brown in the winter, having a clipped evergreen hedge that looks very intentional in the background helps sell that point that this is the style. This is a different beauty that we're trying to teach people to appreciate what plants look like on their own when they're not tidied up. Planted this garden under trees, too. We did. So we have a very full campus. Our tree canopy covers most of our 33 acres. We just have little spots here and there where we have full sun. That was another reason why I wanted to do this style of garden, to increase our living collections with plants, perennials specifically, that needed full sun because I had the space in just a few areas. Also because a lot of those full sunflowering plants can feed our pollinators. In the shade, we have a lot of habitat, but less of the flowering plants. I do have the remnant of the forest that was up here in Buckhead. There's been a lot of development in Buckhead, but we are passionate about saving our trees. We have big oaks and pines, ironwood, hickories, beech trees, all through the entrance gardens. We preserve those, and we do a lot of work to make sure that their root zones are protected as we're going about doing our planting. Especially when we built the tree table up front, we did a lot of work to protect our existing trees while we put this 60-foot-long table underneath them. Didn't plant immediately underneath them in that whole space so we wouldn't be perforating the root zone throughout. Where we have the main bulk of the entrance gardens is right across from the museum. That does face south. So they do get a lot of sun in those long, narrow beds. The shade really goes towards the street. So we were lucky there to be able to grab some of that full sun. We have planting beds in our parking lot, which get a lot of sun as well. Get a lot of heat from the parking lot too on those. We really do. And we've been able to play around and experiment with some plants in there that we weren't really sure what was going to thrive. Parking lots are harsh environments. They reflect a lot of heat. They absorb a lot of heat. They get walked on. (laughs) So people are trying to rush to their cars or the school bus. We do have a lot of grasses like Sipa tenuissima or Mexican feather grass that's really tough, uh, loves the heat. We have a Mexican cloud maple in that bed, which is a really cool species with absolutely enormous samaras. The seeds can be up to six inches across. Interesting plants that we are choosing a few from a little bit more of a southern latitude and all of that heat that can survive in that little microclimate. We also have things like coneflowers that you see in the American prairies. And actually, because we rebuilt those parking lot beds, we dug that soil out a couple of feet because it was just rubble and clay that had been smushed together. And that's all that was left. We dug all that out a couple of feet, created our own planting mix, built that soil back up. So it's actually a very quick draining, looser soil than our native Georgia clay that we have to deal with in so many other places. Those beds are interesting because they're quick draining. The cone flowers we grow in those beds get five feet tall. Wow. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever seen a five foot tall cone flower. It surprised us all. You don't see that very often down here, uh, but it's because that soil's deep in that spot. 
What type of soil mix did you go back with? We brought in dump trucks full of soil. We had topsoil, and then we mixed that with trying to think of what is NCLM, but that's basically what we made. Exploded shale, and then we also used our own compost. We have a farm here with animals, and we also have a cafe and a coffee shop. So we take the grounds and the produce waste and our animal waste, which includes a lot of hay and straw, and we make a compost pile in our hort facility. We have several piles going at the same time. So when we were building out these collections or whenever we're rebuilding a bed in a construction zone, we dig a couple of feet deep, break up what's existing in there, and then we mix our own mix, put it on top, and that includes our own compost as part of that mix. We don't fertilize almost at all. We use our compost and we use compost tea. Occasionally we'll use some of the organic Espoma products, put those out like Garden Tone, Holly Tone where they're needed. Otherwise, you really just use a lot of compost. How do you design a new perennial movement garden? Is there a simple formula for the new perennial movement? Help us understand that. I think it can be as simple or complicated as you want. Mm -hmm. Because if you're a gardener and you want to try lots of different plants out, then you're going to have a more complicated garden to maintain because those plants have all different needs and times of year that they need some kind of maintenance. If you want to put in something that looks modern and streamlined, you can use fewer species, have a simpler look, but just have many more of each one of your plant selections and still achieve that new perennial movement look. It just won't be as biodiverse. We are very biodiverse here. The entrance gardens have over 10,000 plants in them. We are always experimenting. We know what grows well for us and we grow lots of it. And now that is the key to gardening, really, for success in your garden. What grows well on your property? Don't fight it. If that's a good plant and not something invasive, grow lots of that. Really, I think you just have to be observant and also visit your local public gardens and see what grows well and talk to the gardeners and listen to your podcast. Find out what does really well here. Don't waste your money on things that aren't. Pick the things that are going to succeed and you can look around at these public gardens that have done so much work to help figure that out. Anytime I'm designing a new garden, I always start in winter and I start with my structural plants. My first step is always to look at my sight lines and figure out where do I want people to look. In the entrance gardens, I have a really nice long vista that goes across the front of the museum from Veterans Park across to the front door. I wanted to create that long vista with these waves of perennials that you would see in the background. Put in an evergreen holly hedge in one of the long beds that's across from the Texas locomotive and the cyclorama. As you look down this bed, that evergreen clipped hedge is there all year, and it looks nice. But instead of just a plain hedge that you're allowing it to grow into its natural form, we clip this into a wave form. So it gives it a little bit of interest. It's a long swoop. It rises up to maybe three and a half, four feet at most. And then there's a place where you can cut through, and then the wave drops on the other side. It's sort of like an S shape. And then I have perennials on the front end for sun, and behind it is really the shadier part of the garden that's under some tree canopy. And that space, that was the first thing that we installed. Obviously, your soil prep, but when you're doing the design piece, it's those structural components. When you go around the entrance gardens towards McElreath Hall, in that space, we ripped out a garden that had been there that had some plants that are now considered invasive species, so we don't want to have those out as demonstration plants. We When I redesigned that, I was looking at the architecture of the building, and it's very blocky. It's kind of a brutalist architecture. 
there were some niches and I decided that would be a great place to put in the structural component. For there, I put in a fastigiate horn beam. Branches are all pointing pretty much upright. Our director of horticulture, Tiffany Jones, and I actually flew to New Jersey and hand-selected those trees. For each block to fit in the niche at the hall, we picked five trees, a left and a right bookend, and three that go in the middle. We had the nursery prune them for us. As we picked them out, they were 16 feet tall. We had to have them pruned into this shape, kind of like Legos or modular components, and then flatbed the truck here, and we got a crane, and we planted those. And that, So that was that first structural piece for Macklewreath Hall, was putting in this carpinus hedge. The leaves drop in the winter, we put lights behind it, and it backlights it, which is really beautiful. Really, at that point, once you have that structural component, what you're doing in the front of it is sort of the frosting. It's a little bit easier to design that perennial piece when you have your structural component there. Another thing that I do for structure in this garden is create spheres or orbs out of hollies. We use Yopon holly, which is native and extremely durable and tough and responds well to pruning. I'll put different sizes of maybe a 15-gallon, a 10-gallon, and a 7-gallon size plant put a whole bunch of these orbs that we shear into a ball underneath something. So you have the repetition of the size, you have the evergreen quality to it. That way in that bed in front of Macquarie, for example, or in our parking lot, you have that all winter long. If you have grasses and other things in there, they can flow and blow around in the breeze, but you have those clipped structural evergreens to bring it permanence. You see those throughout at the whole entrance gardens has some kind of topiary or clipped element that's structural in either evergreen or the carpinus or deciduous. They provide the structure throughout that entire landscape. My next step then, as I'm looking at my sight lines, if I need to block an ugly view, I screen it at that point when I'm kind of thinking of the garden in winter. And if I want to open up a vista, that's when I do that as well. Obviously, this whole time you're thinking about visitor flow and where people are walking or parking and how traffic can get in and out. Commercial design is a little bit different than residential in that way that you have to think about that. But you're always thinking about how you use the space. What is the functional use of that space? In this case, we had a landscape architect, Matt Kane, that helped lay out the footprint of this whole garden. So I was really coming in to plant the areas that were still open. In other designs, I don't have a landscape architect and I do that part myself or I'm figuring out the traffic pattern and flow. If I was doing residential design, that is where I would start. Where are your open spaces, your lawns, your paths, your patios, your decks? Shape and design those very intentionally so that you can get the most functional use out of your space, block the bad views, open up the good views. Figure out where those open spaces are and make those shapes of those spaces very intentional, rectangular, square, oval, or curvilinear, but very intentional. Then fill in everything else with plants. Don't design your plant bed. You design your open space first. Everything that's left is planted at the end. That's how I design. That way your open spaces or your negative spaces in the landscape look very intentional. Sometimes people will put in a curvy bed on the side of their lawn, but then their lawn just looks like it has a curvy, wavy edge. Whereas if you have a rectangular lawn or a nice oval lawn or something like that and you fill in everything else, it looks professionally designed to me. So those are starting points. As far as the rest of your plant selection, our whole team here at Goizuana Gardens got involved. I call them the brain trust. And so we all put our minds together and try to think about what are the plants that thrive here that we want to show off that we know are going to do well, our stalwarts, whatever those are for any homeowner, start there. Start with the things you know are going to do and are not going to be a lot of trouble for you. 
Then there's the plants I like to think of that feed your soul. Well, I really want to try this. I'm excited about this new plant or this heirloom plant. It's something that you love, but maybe it's a little bit more fussy and maybe it needs a little bit extra work. Don't do too many of those. You want those plants that are easy to maintain plants in bulk and your experimental plants in smaller numbers. <laughs> I call those the prima donnas as well. And we have some of those in every garden because they're worth it. They feed your soul. They might have some fantastic flower or something. They're a little more work, so you don't put too many of those in. And with a new prenatal movement garden, there's always a lot of grasses. That movement in the wind is really a beautiful thing. And new prenatal movement gardens are often designed around light as well. In this garden, I was looking at morning light and evening light. And when it cuts through the garden at an angle, that's really where you can make your grasses shine. If they're flowering and you get late afternoon sun cutting through them, they just get illuminated and they're beautiful. (laughs) All those photographs you get of new perennial movement gardens, they often are in that cutting low light, which is why you see a lot of these gardens up in more northern latitudes where you have an angled light that's really beautiful. Whereas here, we can get baked full sun, blasted so much of the year, a little bit closer to the equator. You can still look at your morning and evening light and place your grasses, even if they're just still in pots, lay them out around your yard and see where the light cuts through them really beautifully. Or if you have a plant like Cotinus smokebush that has kind of translucent leaves, the sun cuts through that really prettily as well. Place that around your garden and see where the light comes through it nicely first. Those are just a few (laughs) thoughts on design. I have a lot more. Key to this is really picking the plants that have strong stems in winter, good seed heads, multiple seasons of interest. When you're looking at your palette, I would start with a native palette and really try to grow the plants that are native to Georgia, or at least the Southeast. Because when you're growing those native plants, you're also supporting your native pollinators. And many of these plants and pollinators have co-evolved and they require that plant or that pollinator in order to reproduce. We won't have them if we don't feed them. Our plant palette up front is primarily native. And then we also have a large component behind the museum. Our quarry garden is a native plant garden for Georgia. Swan Woods is a 10-acre Piedmont forest. We have a lot here, and then our canopy across the whole acreage is primarily native as well. We see an absolutely enormous amount of pollinators and birds here. We frequently do the Georgia Pollinator Census we just had a couple weeks ago, and then we also host Audubon Bird Walks here, and we're an Audubon Wildlife Sanctuary. It's a hot spot on eBird if you happen to track birds. Come to Goizueta Gardens because you'll see we have a huge list here of both migrating and permanent residents. Is there a plant list that's available, or do we just need to come out and copy down all that? You've wonderfully labeled. That's a great question. I get asked that enough that we've launched a project to inventory the whole garden now that it's been in the ground for a few years. We have completed that inventory, and we will be making that list publicly available. It'll probably be on our website under the Entrance Gardens page. If anybody emails me and wants our plant list, I can send it out as well before that manages to make it online, which is just part of running a public garden. Botanical Garden collects and presents plants to the public for educational purposes, but they have to be labeled or people don't know what they're looking at. We made a big effort in the entrance to go ahead and get those garden plants labeled with display labels. We also accession them and track them in a plant records database. Just part of being a botanical garden or a museum, you accession your objects and you care for them in the way that they need caring for. That's a whole nother job that we do that usually people don't see. So I always really appreciate it when somebody says thank you for the labels because it's a lot of work to track. 
only way you know what you have is to do plant records and to keep them really up to date. So we're actually doing this inventory across our entire campus. We know we have almost 4,000 trees on campus now, a four-inch caliber or greater. Those are all inventoried in our database, mapped and tagged across campus. So that's, it's an ongoing project, but we hope in the next probably year and a half to complete that and then make that information available online. Do you expect as part of the maintenance component of the entry garden having to dig and divide that garden a lot? There's not a lot of dig and divide if the plant needs it or if we want more of it. There's not a lot of plants that frequently need division in this garden. One of the ones that has surprised us a little bit is we use a lot of switchgrass or panicum forgotum. We found that in some places where the soil is average to moist, it will fall apart in the middles. We're trying to drop the water in those areas where we can, but we cannot control the rain. And we've had some real deluges recently. We're going to try dividing those this fall and replant after November, pretty late in the season, and see if that will help because we don't need plants that flop over. If we have plants that are really floppy, then that's the wrong plant for that spot. We take it out and replace it with something else and find a different home for that plant where the conditions are more suitable. Panicum is a great plant. It's very tolerant of wet soil, dry soil, and everything in between, but I think it performs better when it's a little bit drier. In other areas of the garden, it's really happy standing up tall in one spot where it's floppy. We'll take those out or divide them and try it again that way because we don't want to have to stake and we don't want to have to do a lot of cutbacks or other high maintenance sort of work. When you have a garden that's this large with 10,000 plants, they just can't be that fussy. We don't have that many staff <laughs> to keep doing that much maintenance. Really, the goal is to trial a lot of these plants and see what are the easy low maintenance plants. Sometimes a plant can have a bad reputation when it's really just in the wrong site. We're experimenting here to see what is really easy and low maintenance. Most of this garden is full of plants that are easy to grow and don't require a lot of you. I'm trying to think of what the real problem things are. It's, it's really just stuff that aesthetically we choose to cut back like our asters. We want them to bloom later in the season, so we cut them back in May. Delays the bloom a little bit so that hopefully they bloom on Veterans Day for us. It's not necessary. It's just something that we do because we choose to. Otherwise, it's really most of the maintenance is weeding. Weeding is the real bear. When a garden's in its infancy, especially a garden like this, new perennial movement gardens are often planted as plugs, little two-inch plugs or four-inch plants, and they might be 18 inches apart. First year or two, you are weeding, 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 because you don't really lay down a heavy layer of mulch on this kind of garden, which is a nice thing. Nobody likes to have to go out and spread mulch. Do use what I call a scuffle hoe. I think I've heard it called a stirrup hoe as well, where you can stand up and just scrape it across the ground. As long as your weeds are small, an inch or two, that works really well at slicing them across the root. They're too young to really regenerate at that point. That's a lot of the work, really, is the weeding. And we do a lot of hand pulling. We don't use very many chemicals at all. We're very judicious in, those, in the use of those as needed. We mostly hand pull or scrape. We have some volunteers. We're always looking for more. If anyone wants to come volunteer with us, that would be great. Other maintenance tasks that I think are critical is leaving room for yourself. When you're planting a garden, you can shove it so full of plants that there's nowhere to step. In our garden beds where they're 15, 20, 30 feet deep, 
we have access points along the back and the front of the beds where you can get in. And we also make sure that you can drive one of our utility carts close to the site. So if we're cutting it back, pulling a lot of weed, bringing plants out to the site, we have access to get in and out of there. That's important in public garden design across the board. If you're going to be maintaining the garden, it won't be maintained if it's very difficult to get to. So you have to think about when you're in the design phase of how do you reach this? If you're putting in a hedge that needs clipping several times a year, can people get to it easily? Is it easy to get to it and nip it back a little bit? Or is it a giant chore that nobody wants to do? (laughs) And you're talking about clipping. On your hedges, you're saying you have certain forms and shapes to them. That's intentional, but it's creating more maintenance. Is that for an aesthetic? Yes, it's really for aesthetics. I want the hedges to have a clean, sharp line because the whole rest of the acreage is soft. Mm -hmm. So I have grasses and perennials and big sweeps and things dotting around and seeding in, and it can look haphazard but luxurious. There's nothing haphazard about it. It's all very intentionally designed, but it looks that way. Because the goal in that design is to learn those plants' natural habits, to learn how they spread in nature. And then I lay out all of those plants individually, sometimes to recreate what they do in nature. If something grows in a mass and it spreads by stolons, then that's how I'm going to lay those plants out. If something seeds in one here, one here, that's how I'm going to lay those plants out. With the hedges, I just want that intentional clipped hard line so all that froth in front of it doesn't look like a mess. It looks so much prettier, especially when you have winter and you're looking at whites and creams and beiges and buff and tawny browns. There's not a lot of color. That green background is really important. And I want that line to be really clean and sharp. In the winter, they're not growing so much. They require a lot of maintenance. But we do in spring. We have two great horticulturists up front, Cameron and Lexley. And every week, look around and decide what needs to be done out here. What's the highest priority? couple of times a year, the highest priority is going to be clipping those hedges, especially at the very front entrance. That part is brand new. We just put in five rows of hedges. I like undulating waves in front of the museum behind each other. That is our front entrance has to always look pretty sharp. That's why when I was laying that out, we put a little small narrow footpath along the hedges so that you can get in there and clip it back as needed. You mentioned you brought in a lot of soil. Was there other things you had to do to prep that soil before you could actually plant it? There was. And in each garden bed, there was something different we had to do. So the beds that didn't have any trees in them, we could dig that out, that compacted clay, and replace it like we talked about before. In the main bulk of the entrance gardens, the bed that's across from the locomotive in the cyclorama, that bed was severely compacted during the construction of those buildings. There were also trees behind it. It wasn't an area that we had either the funding or the ability to remove and replace. We actually turned to an old historic technique of cover cropping. For two years, we cover cropped that whole front bed which means that instead of growing plants for beauty or aesthetics, we were growing plants that would feed the soil. Soil was subsoil at this point. The topsoil was gone. We got some cover crop mixes that we crafted and working with So True Seed and decided to plant that whole space, which was large, in a cool season cover crop mix. Grew that on. And then once that kind of comes into bloom or gets ready to bloom, before it goes to seed, you cut it down let it dry for a week or two, and then till it under. You're just feeding the earth all this biomass, but also the plants you select for cover crops are doing different jobs. For example, nitro radishes are these monster radishes that will hammer through hard pan 
And as they rot in the winter, that root mass will rot, turn to mush, and feed all of the microorganisms in the soil, which you have to have in order to grow a garden. Soil was dead before, but it is thriving with microorganisms now. There's a lot of different mixes. Some plants reach long, skinny roots deep into the ground and they pull up nitrogen to the surface. Other ones go through the hard pan. Other ones fix nitrogen in the soil or legumes. After the cool season, we did it again for summer. Summer, we were really looking at growing plants that had a large amount of biomass. So things like sun hemp, which looks like a sunflower, but it will get six or seven feet tall. It was a little wild. I mean, we were growing this in our garden along West Pace's Ferry Road. It looked a little crazy, but it was a talking point and it was interesting. And then we would cut that huge amount of biomass down, those large plants that we had thousands of up there, then force feed it into the earth, stuff all that organic matter into the soil and let it rot and then do it again. We did four full cycles up there. It was a ton of work that allowed us to create topsoil in that space without having to dig it out and replace it. So it was a fun experiment. It's something we do at the farm all the time with cover crops over the winter. It covers your soil so you don't have soil erosion and it feeds your microorganisms, creates a lot of organic matter in the soil. It was really a phenomenal experiment. And when we were digging in a staircase into the side of the hill, it was great to see those horizon levels in the soil and see that organic matter at the top as you worked your way through and then seeing the really gross clay that was two feet deep that obviously hadn't been touched. Been able to grow all kinds of different plants up there now. It's because we did two years of soil preparation before we ever bought a plant to put in the ground for the collections. Yeah, that does sound like a lot of prep to get that soil alive again. And one of the features that I've noticed when I visited was this large table. It looked like it had been made out of a tree. Could you tell us about that? Yes, it was made out of a tree. That tree had been dying in our parking lot and was getting to the point of maybe becoming a hazard. So we took it out with the intention of using it. Had it taken down in 8 and 10 foot sections, sealed the ends, took it to a local sawmill, and had it cut in 2 and 3 inch slabs with the idea of taking this venerable old white oak and giving it a new life as a giant table. If you imagine an oak standing but being sliced down the middle and laid flat, that's what the tree table looks like. The 3 inch slabs were pieced back together in the shape of the oak although it's underneath our oaks and pines up front now. Two-inch slabs were made into benches that are bookended on either side of each trunk piece. Sixteen tables in all that are all connected and benches that are connected with it. You can seat maybe 100 people up there at the same time. It's a really fun way to repurpose a tree that's died. We call it tree cycling. You don't want to become wood chips. It's a white oak. It was gorgeous and very tall. It's great now that we have this big space that we can use for community gatherings or functions. People come up here and they eat at Super Jenny and Brash and they just sit out at the table and there's Wi-Fi. It's just a really nice space in the shade surrounded by the entrance gardens. It's a peaceful area to hang out. The Atlanta History Center is surrounded by gardens and we haven't even talked anything about that. Could you just give us a sampling of what is available on the 33 acres there? Yes, I can. We are technically a botanical garden, but to avoid confusion, we just call ourselves a public garden since we have another wonderful botanical garden in Atlanta as well. We have 33 acres. The entrance gardens is the first thing you're going to see. Once you go inside the museum and you step out the back door, you walk into Olguita's garden, which is a garden in honor of Olga C. de Goizueta. Notice our name is Goizueta Gardens. 
She was once a trustee here. When she passed away, her family wanted to honor her with a memorial garden, and she loved English and French gardens. So this gave us an opportunity to put a garden right behind the museum that follows the whole garden facade of the museum in the back. It's a beautiful, highly ornamental garden with fragrant plants, and it's in the English and French garden styles. Very different than what you're going to see at the entrance gardens. What you'll find as you go through all of the 33 acres, we have a great variety of gardens and garden styles that are either from different periods in history or different styles, or they're more natural. There's something for everybody, whatever you like in garden styles, you're going to find it here at a different point in the landscape. There's also something always in bloom or hitting peak season because these gardens are all so different and the collections within them are also different. There's something going on all year, which is nice. If you go through Olguita's garden and you take a left, you would end up at the Smith Farm, which is an 1860s farm, a working farm. We have heritage breed animals. We grow heirloom crops. This is interpreted in the 1860s period, which is, of course, the Civil War. One of the things I love to point out to people that's really cool about the History Center makes us really unique is that we have these incredible exhibits on the inside, and then we have related content on the outside. So if you think of us as a public garden, you can also think of us as an open-air museum. When you get to the farm, you're stepping into an 1860s landscape that's all historically researched. If you go to the Cherokee Garden Library, you're going to find the resources that we use to do the research at the farm to grow the right crops that were growing here in Atlanta in the 1860s or what breeds of animals were at farms at this period. Obviously, it's very small compared to the 800 acres it once was, but we don't have 800 acres. So it's about two (laughs) over here. We do a lot on those acres. So field crops, the enslaved people's garden, the kitchen garden. There's little pocket meadows throughout it as well in an orchard. If you carry on from there, you can go up the hill and you would reach the 1928 Swan House. It's an incredible piece of classical architecture and landscape architecture by Philip Trammell Schutze. A very formal landscape. And that was obviously here when the History Center moved to this site. That was why. When Louise Allen said, we cannot let this landscape disappear or be sold off into private hands, this would be an amazing place to move the Historical Society to. And that's when we moved here way back in the 1960s. And that was why we inherited all that Inman estate and the Swan House and then built the Keenan Research Center and later built the museum and all these other gardens that surround it. So the Swan House landscape is a remarkable space. A lot of people have come here for weddings in that location. On the other side of it, just a little bit beyond it, is Swan Woods which is a 10-acre Piedmont forest, which is an incredible resource to have in Buckhead or in the city. There's just 10 acres of woodland and trails, and out on the far end of the woods is the Wood Family Cabin, which is utilized like a pioneer cabin. And you can kind of think about what it was like for those early pioneers in the Atlanta area and what it was like for them to meet Native Americans on this site, the Creek or Muscogee Nation people that were here. Beyond that, if you walk through the cabin and the wildflower meadow, there's a chestnut orchard out there, and you can take our boardwalk back down. If we're doing kind of a big loop here, you would end up at the base of Swan House looking up the hill along Andrews Drive. That's that very famous shot that you see on postcards. Right there is the Asian Garden. This is a collector's garden of Asian flora. It's also where we house our Japanese maple collection. It is a staggeringly beautiful site in November. When all of those have turned colors, about 50 Japanese maples in there that are mature. Lots of collector plants underneath it and a creek running through. 
And then across from the Asian garden is the rhododendron garden, which is another site where we have a lot of Asian flora, actually, hydrangeas, azaleas, more of the magnolias and collector trees. A lot of interesting specimens in that garden, particularly I like to point out to people that are like, what can I do with my landscape here in Atlanta? Because it's all this topography, rising and falling soil covered up in trees. It's really what's typical within the perimeter. You see a lot of this kind of landscape. These are examples of just stalwart, wonderful plants that are easy to grow in this area. This garden doesn't have an era like the Swan House or the farm. It doesn't have a restriction on native plant range in here. So we can experiment with a lot more modern plants in here or build out our collection of azaleas and hydrangeas in this garden to show what really thrives without a ton of maintenance in the Atlanta area. It's a good demonstration garden. It usually hits its peak in probably early May or late April when those azaleas or hydrangeas are getting going. That takes us to the center of the whole place, which is the Cory Garden. The Cory Garden was once a quarry back in the probably very, very early 1900s, and it was later abandoned. It's 30 feet below grade, and this is where they used to mine biotite nice, G-N-E-I-S-S. Once that was all removed, it was probably used as a road substrate around Atlanta. That space kind of went wild afterwards, and it was full of invasive species, but also native species that came in once it was abandoned. Later, that was made into the Georgia Native Plant Collection. All that was cleared out and then replanted and back in the 70s. And so we have a really full, mature, one of the most diverse collections in Georgia of native plants. And that's primarily housed in the quarry garden, but of course, also throughout our tree canopy, Swanwoods, the farm and the entrance gardens as well. And that's our tour. That's all of our, <laughs> all of our gardens in a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, you put a craving on me to come back and see it again. As you were going through all that, I said, you know, I hadn't really seen that like I should. I need to go back and take a look. When are you open and how do you get to see all this? All of that information is on our website for most up-to-date times and days. But we are open Tuesday through Sunday, 9 to 4. The historic houses have slightly different opening times. I will say most people do not plan to have enough time when they come. They will frequently have an idea of I want to see the cyclorama or I want to see one of our new exhibits. And they'll step outside and not know that we have so much behind the museum as well. Such a big landscape with so much going on to explore. So give yourself a couple of hours on a beautiful day and have a chance to walk around the outside. And if it's not so beautiful outside, you have an entire museum to explore. I think the best value is one of the memberships where you can come multiple times and not have to pay every time you come. Yes, absolutely. We have one of the least expensive memberships for cultural institutions in Atlanta. It is an incredible value. Sometimes once you've seen a place, you think, do I need to go back here? Obviously, we have the rotating exhibits in the museum, but with gardens, they're always changing. Every season, every month or two, there's something different to see. There's something different in peak bloom. You can also just get your exercise and come out and walk the trails, walk the landscape, get some fresh air. This was an amazing place for people to come to during the pandemic when things were closed down. You could just come here and be outside and in the gardens and have a huge amount of land to yourself to just walk around. It's not that crowded. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? It's a great question. It took me a while to break away from the things I was taught design school. Instead of being so rigid and stuck to those plants in threes and fives and things like that, 
think it's really important to find out what really gives you a thrill, what makes you really happy, and to let go of some of those principles or works well for your landscape. I think we worry sometimes too much about what will someone else think or am I doing it right? Really what matters, is it right for you? Does it work for you, your family, your garden, your landscape? Here, what works for us, especially in the entrance gardens, is to plant in huge numbers. For planting grasses, I might get anywhere between 20 and 200 because obviously we have a lot of land to cover, but we plant them fairly densely and go for it because then you get this big impact when that plant is doing its thing. I feel like when you're a collector or if you're just nervous about it, you, you might grow a couple of things and never really get that impact that you're going for. You have to be bold. You have to go for big numbers to get the impact that really blows your hair back. What garden myth would you like to smash? Oh, gosh, probably putting 10, 10, 10 down several times a year. Because why? Did you do a soil test? Do you actually need the 10, 10, 10? Could you just use compost? I think a lot of people, we think like, oh, I have to fertilize this. Or you read recommendations from someone, maybe you ordered dahlias or daffodils or who knows what, and you're reading the recommendations that comes with them. And they say, do this, plant this, put on some 10, 10, 10, or put on this fertilizer. But that is assuming that your soil needs it. I've learned through practice that if you rely on chemical fertilizers, your plants, your soil, it all relies on chemical fertilizers. You build that dependence in. And once you start, can't stop. You're also killing off a lot of stuff in your soil that you really don't want to kill off. I would shift away from a chemical dependency, whether that's herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers. I would shift away from that as best you can. And little by little, sometimes you need those tools. Try to do more composting. Try to find more earth-friendly alternatives because the benefits that you reap later, once your soil is healthy, your garden will be healthy. Your plants will help defend themselves against your pests and diseases so much more when they have healthy soil to work with. What is your earliest garden memory? Oh, I have a lot. Very fortunately, I had two sets of grandparents that both gardened. My dad was a big gardener as well. I grew up doing this. I have a lot of early memories gardening. I think one of my first was picking a fig off my grandfather's fig bush and eating it fresh off the bush and thinking that was magical. I'd never had one before and it was so good. I remember gardening with my grandparents up in New York as well and digging plants in and discovering worms and just being flabbergasted and having a little startled but then mesmerized by these things which we later fished with. I think all of that, just digging the dirt and discovering and trying something fresh from your garden to eat, what a different experience that was than getting it out of the fridge. I think those were very formative for me. Why did you decide to pursue a horticultural career? I really knew from a very early age, this is what I wanted to do. I followed my dad around the garden since I could walk. We moved a lot, both my parents were in the military. So every time we moved... We were gardening, starting over. So I just did that a lot growing up. That was what I was familiar with. That is what I knew. I was more drawn to the ornamental side. Early on, I ended up going to Berry College and getting my horticulture degree there and the University of Reading in England for a year abroad. Knew I wanted to pursue public horticulture after I'd done an internship at the Arnold Arboretum in Plant Records. That was my first time being at a public garden or an arboretum and seeing that you could do all your exploration of cool, interesting plants and try growing different things and you could be paid to do it, you could present it to the public. And it was like this gift, you know, you could provide a beautiful space for people to come with their families, to walk around with their kids. It just felt like a really lovely career to have if you could figure out 
how to make a living while doing it, which is hard in horticulture. <laughs> it's not a high pay industry. Once I found the public side of it, it was that much more appealing. I've really wanted to work in public horticulture ever since and in public gardens since that internship. Would you tell us a funny garden story? <laughs> well, the first one that comes to mind was when we were in the entrance gardens, a lot of funny stories about the entrance gardens. <laughs> I would put colored flags in the ground because we were planting it in November and everything was pretty much cut back that we got from nurseries. So you're planting kind of blind. You're just going, well, I think I know what this plant looks like in my head and I'm going to lay it out like this. But I would use colored flags for each different species. By the time I had finished laying out the design of the garden, probably had 2,000 colored flags in the ground. We had a school group come. Kids were so excited about all these colored flags. Over there. They ran over there and they pulled them out. <laughs> I oh, was no. like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I want to help. And then they would jab them back in the ground. I just thought, oh, God. <laughs> so I ended up redoing some of that. So remember, we just have the most incredible team of horticulturists here. After I'd laid things out, they were working on planting the hedge and I left to go do something else. And then I was doing a tour with my boss, going back to the garden, showing him this is what we're working on. Here's the progress. Apparently, I had laid out the hedge plants across a buried driveway that I didn't know was there. Uh -oh. When we went back through, there were two of our horticulturists. They'd gone out, rented a jackhammer, come back and blown through this driveway so they could put the hedge plants in place. I just remember being... <laughs> so impressed with the problem solving and like, well, this is where she wants them. So let's figure it out. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> I was like, wow, check that out. They're incredible. There are just so many stories like this where we've run into some problem we had no idea was coming. And that's so much of what gardening and horticulture, especially for the public, is, is problem solving. How are we going to work our way around this issue that we're trying to face? You have to be very flexible and creative and good at logistics. This team here is really incredible. You have the plan for the day, but you better be ready to hit the curveball. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? I would say that's Lyndon Miller. Lyndon's a public garden designer in New York City. Worked at the New York Botanical Garden for five years in my 20s. They're curator of herbaceous plants. And she was on the board there. And she was also the designer of the perennial garden, the ladies' border, and the seasonal walk that they have up there. I would just go with my notepad and just listen to everything she said. She's such an incredible designer, has such broad knowledge of plants and experience and fundraising as well. I would just go and listen and write down everything that she said. And then as I worked there with her over the years, I really learned a lot from her about design, particularly more in the English garden style. I loved working with her. We're still in touch today. I think she's an incredible public garden designer. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Probably planting too many of something I haven't experimented with yet. Now, if I'm planting bulbs, because I'm a big daffodil nut, Instead of getting lots of them and then doing all that work to plant them and finding out that really that bulb is better for a show bench than a garden performer. Now, when I buy bulbs particularly or any perennial, I'll buy a small quantity. I'll plant it out in a couple of different places. I'll watch it for two years, especially with bulbs. Their first year, that bulb is Dutch grown and it is as healthy as it's ever going to be from growing in sand. Next year, it's going to have reproduced and be growing in your Georgia soil. And you'll see really how does it really do and when does it actually bloom? Because they always bloom late their first year. So we'll do that. Experiment on a scale and just rein yourself in and be patient and wait and see how those plants do before you do them in a larger quantity. What have you recently learned regarding horticultural gardening? Learning a lot about IPM, about Southern blight something that we have in our soil, there's really not much you can do about it. 
Where we do have southern blight, you'll see the white mats of mycelia, the fungal mycelia at the base of the plant and some orange brangia at the base. You have to dig out the soil and dig out the plant and bag it and throw it in the trash. You can't even compost it because you have to completely dig it out of your soil because it will just spread. And the amount of host plants is really unfortunate. There are hundreds of host plants, perennials, shrubs, all sorts. And so if you see it, you get rid of it, replace the soil, try again and hope that you got it all. That's been a hard lesson. And we're still doing some research on that. We're going to work with UGA and get some expert advice there from their pathology department. I think that's one of the things, like I said, about problem solving. You just never know what you're going to run into. We've had a lot of stem borers, ambrosia beetles that we've learned how to manage over the years. Right now, we're dealing with this fungal problem in our soil, and there's always something. We have root-knot nematodes at the farm. Do you learn how to manage it? We try to do things creatively and organically. We don't want to nuclear bomb the soil and kill off all those microbes that we work so hard to feed and get a really healthy soil mix going. So we're learning. We have some really interesting methods now that we've put to work and really reduced our problem areas. The root-knot nematodes, we grow something called mighty mustard in our fields, and they can't feed on it, so they just starve out. And the mustard's beautiful, and it's good for the soil. So methods like that, it's called integrated pest management, trying to break up the life cycle of a problem plant and then use natural or organic methods to control it as best we can. Now, this is in regards to your personal garden, and I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have... Too many plants. <laughs> I don't know. Can you have too many plants? I would also say in my garden, I have goldfinches, which is so exciting. I love goldfinches. My garden is very much like the entrance gardens. It's in the new perennial movement style. What I love about that is I'm just in a neighborhood. I just have a normal little house. I've created these huge islands around the trees that exist on my property, and I've planted them in that same style. And it's fun for me because all the dog walkers and neighbors and all come by, and we get to have all these conversations about, like, what are you doing? Because, you know, in suburban Atlanta, we grow azaleas, right, and dogwoods and pine trees and magnolias. And you don't see this style of gardening out in the suburbs. So it's it's a great conversation starter, and I have so many birds on my property. And so, and I have two little girls, and so we go out there and I work with them on gardening. And that's been a great joy for me to share that with them and pass these lessons on, but also to meet people in the neighborhood and encourage them. And so I often will end up splitting my plants and giving them to neighbors and watching their gardens grow as well. What did you learn from your garden last year that you're applying this year? I learned that I really don't need to irrigate that much. Put in irrigation, and I did not have it running. We had a lot of rain. I also have some very dry, hard ground, and I really thought I was going to need to water a lot more than I did. Once I realized it was unnecessary, I cut the water off, saved a lot of money, and that's just because I'm planting things that once they are established are very drought tolerant because I'm a working mom of two, and I don't have all the time in the world at home to fuss around in my garden. So I have very low maintenance plants out there that need to take care of themselves. I was willing to throw some water at them, but if I don't even need to do that, great. I would also say I've learned to plant a little bit more densely so I have less weeding to do. So if you're not irrigating, you're not throwing a lot of overhead water on them, you don't have as many fungal problems. So you can plant a little bit denser and suppress your weeds if you're using drip irrigation or no irrigation or just hand watering at the base of a plant. You won't have as many fungal issues where typically if you plant really dense and you water overhead, you're going to have a lot of things like mildew. 
What are your future plans for your garden? I have big plans for my backyard. My front yard's mostly done. In my backyard, sadly, I had to have the entire thing scraped off to put in a new septic tank and system. So it is a blank slate. I'm going to be putting in a patio space to gather and cook s'mores with my girls. Then plant it all up like a meadow in the back, much like the entrance gardens. And then I have woodland behind that where I have a lot of native shrubs and small trees that I've started and azaleas, camellias, all sorts of other things that are just beautiful. I use my garden for cut flowers. I also am building some raised beds for vegetables. So there'll be a lot going on in that space, (laughs) keeping me busy. It also feeds my soul. I think horticulture and gardening is very therapeutic. It's good for you. You get exercise. You're outside. You're in the fresh air. There's so many benefits to it. I'd love to see more people pick up gardening as a hobby. What's your favorite plant this week? It's a great uh, this week. Thank you for that. That is a kindness. (laughs) (laughs) I learned how to ask that question. I'm going to go with Georgia Savory, Clinopodium Georgianum. It is flowering now in the entrance gardens. It is an absolutely gorgeous little plant. It probably gets about two feet around and maybe a foot tall. I'm going to say it. It's a zero maintenance. Do not do anything to it. It's growing on the side of a slope, very well-drained soil, very hard clay. It's native here, and it's just humming along. It took a couple years to get to this size. It has a beautiful lavender flower. It feeds our native bees. It asks absolutely nothing of us. So that right now is my favorite plant of the week. I was asking you for some final thoughts. I really think when you're planting these gardens and you put in things like cone flowers and you bring in the gold finches or you put out Georgia calamint or our native nodding onions and you bring in all of our native bees, it is such a joy just to observe and see your hard work pay off by seeing pollinators on your plants. Then the birds come around, the ones that are insectivorous, and they're going to start eating those insects too. So you really, you just create this wilderness and life in your garden that is so personally rewarding, but also a wonderful thing that you're doing for the environment. It's a great joy. It's a passion of mine. I love seeing people come around to it. We get so many questions about the entrance garden. So I just encourage people to come out and have a look, have a walk around and enjoy the space. Sarah, how can people connect with you? I can be reached a couple of different ways. My email is sroberts at atlantahistorycenter.com. And I can also be booked for a behind-the-scenes tour of the Entrance Gardens, which is available on our website, atlantahistorycenter.com. This has been Episode 75, New Perennial Movement Goes South with Sarah Roberts. Thank you, Sarah. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.